0: If you'll keep your Bibles open to 1 Peter. Um, I'm anxious to get into this portion, as I'm sure every woman in the congregation is. But I think you may find that this is a little different than you might have imagined or, or maybe have heard from some different sources uh, over the years. It's, and that's one of the things that we want to look at at the very beginning here, Um, there's two things worth noting as we come into this passage that assist us in keeping on track, both in interpreting a passage like this and applying a passage like this. And these two things are going to be useful in all of your Bible studies, so it's worth digging them out right now at the beginning of today's study, and then we'll um, uh, see how they apply in, in what we're doing. You no doubt have noticed that the reading we just had done for us started back in chapter two. Again, there were no chapter divisions in the original autographs. And so what's happening is that thoughts are being continued on. If you take out that chapter division, you realize that Peter's initial thought that he started back in verse 13 hasn't ended yet. And it has to do so. We want to think about connecting thoughts when you're reading your Bible. To just read a verse in isolation is always going to leave you in a very, very bad place. Often on Wednesday nights we've talked about this, about reading things in context. If you were to see the, if you were out in your backyard, uh, doing some, some gardening of some sort, though I have no idea why anybody would do that. But if you were doing that and you happened to strike a clay pot as you dug down and you opened it up and inside was this piece of paper and you unwrapped it and it was old and ancient, and all you could make out on the paper was these words, four words, I had a ball. What would that mean? I have no idea. I don't know what the author was saying. You don't know who he was writing to or she was writing to or who was supposed to be receiving it. It could be saying, I had a great time. Could be saying, I once had a spherical toy. Uh, Could be saying, uh, I threw a cotillion. Who knows? And yet, often people will read their Bibles by reading one verse and say, gee, I know what that means. No, you don't, unless you know what came before it and what comes after it. So you want to follow connecting thoughts in the author's uh, patterns as he works through this. In this case, the word likewise is your hinge. Chapter 3, verse 1 starts with likewise, wives. Likewise with who? With what? Well, with the two examples I just gave you up above here in chapter 2, picking up in verse 13. So you, you, you want to go back and say, "All right, th- he's continuing the same thought. He hasn't gone anywhere." The Three, one is your clue that it's an appeal to what's come immediately before, And what came immediately before, as I said, were those two examples. The Christians are to relate to secular and unsympathetic authorities a certain way. Uh, that's that's what you get in the the first example. 13 through 17 was couched in dealing with um, persecuted Christians who had to relate to a, a government that was very contrary to them, and which finishes with those words, honor the emperor. And then 18 through 25 had to do with the Christian being a servant or a slave in this context, or we could use employee in our context, relating to their masters, their bosses, even if their bosses are unjust, if they're real goof-offs. So learning to suffer injustice without retaliation or rebellion. He, He's driving at that idea of how we respond to these things. And the goal of this instruction was ultimately evangelistic. We saw that as we unpacked those portions. Making this contrary to the world spirit of Christ evident. Making it highly visible to the people that we interact with. In both, the same principle was being articulated. Again, as God's royal priesthood in this world... We are never to respond sinfully to sin that's inflicted upon us. There's a righteous response. It isn't that we don't respond at all, but we respond righteously. And injustice never gives us leave to act out of order. And so coming to the home and understanding God's arrangement in the household, the same principle holds true. Someone else acting sinfully or poorly can never be the believer's excuse for breaking God's order and acting sinfully in return. We get that. We're to be above that. And we'll unpack that more uh, in a moment. The second part, then, that we want to have, the first is make sure you're reading these thoughts, continuous thoughts in the Scripture as you read a passage. The second is that we have to be reminded of personal application.
1: <sighs> that
0: when When we read the Word and we get instruction and we only think in terms of, boy, this ought to apply to someone else, you can be sure you're abusing your Bible study. Um, this is it. Personal application, but the finger always points at other people. Never points at me. And this is uh, especially true when we come into a passage like we're, we're looking at here. The one thing you don't want to be is bashing people over the head with the Bible. It's not a productive activity, and it's not a a biblical activity. To see how the passage applies to others without how how it should apply to ourselves first is to abuse it. We saw that in Proverbs 31, didn't we, when we were looking at that portion? It's a common problem in the church for men to look at a passage like we're going to look at here, or Proverbs 31, and say to some woman, See, this is what you ought to be doing. This is how you ought to be living up. And ladies, you can do the same with the passages that are unique to men, as we're going to see in the next portion next week, God willing. In each of these cases, our sinfulness is revealed in how we read the word and then try to enforce it respecting others rather than see how God is exposing sin in my heart and what I ought to be doing with it. Maybe the other person is sinning, but how am I responding? Am I responding in sin? Or am I responding in righteousness? So if you come away from your study of the Bible armed with things to impose on others rather than be humbled how your sin needed to be dealt with in Christ, you're abusing your Bible and probably abusing other people in the process. So with those two things in mind, kind of setting the stage for us, I want to look at the text itself. And again, we're back to this word likewise. Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands. Just as none of us are to respond sinfully to our government, even in its corruption, and there's lots of it, or perhaps to our masters or employees or employers, even in their corruption, and there might be much of it. So Christian wives, likewise, learn not to respond sinfully to your husbands, even when they sin. It doesn't mean that you're silent about sin. But it does matter how, whether or not you respond to that righteously. Peter insists this applies even if that, even if that husband is not a Christian. Uh, some of you may be in that position, I don't know. Uh, in this context, uh, Peter's anticipating that some women came to the saving knowledge of Christ and their husbands had not yet. We know full well from the teaching of Scripture that a a Christian shouldn't marry a non-Christian anyway, but in this context, probably some wives came to the saving knowledge of Jesus and they had unsaved husbands who were in, and that's what this phrase means, even if some do not obey the word, the idea is is broad there that, that they really are not following Christ at all. And so to be careful not to use your husband's sins or shortcomings... Nor as status as an unbeliever, which I think the passage here is clear about, as an excuse to respond in sinful ways, or as as an indication that somehow they've abdicated their role in the home before God, because they fail to execute it well. Some guys are jerks. We know that. A lot of guys are jerks, and sometimes we're jerks a lot, and sometimes we're just it comes out once in a while. But it's there. And so does that automatically give leave to just to just capsize God's proper order and the way things are to work? And and Peter's saying, no, don't let that that happen. What is interesting is what Peter says in verses five through six. So I want you to do this for this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves by submitting to their own husbands as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. And you are her children if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. Now his citation of Sarah here I found absolutely fascinating. Number one, because the only place in all of Scripture that we read that Sarah called Abraham Lord was in Genesis 18, 12, and it says that she did so in her heart. Shall my Lord and I have pleasure after all these years and actually have a child together? Hmm. So how does that work? How do we draw from that? And certainly when you don't get an immediate answer from the text, you've got to broaden the scope of how you search a passage like that out. Whatever does Peter mean in this context by citing Sarah and so it was in my own study at this point that I went back to build a bit of a biographical sketch of Sarah to try and get a handle on Peter's thought where's he going with all this and what we find is is really a fascinating study that sheds some real light on and understanding on what the Holy Spirit is driving home through her example Genesis 11.30 starts the biography of of Sarah, uh, and it says that now Sarah was barren. She had no child. This was a woman who was no stranger to disappointment and perhaps frustration and lack of fulfillment. She was barren, and this was into her old age. And especially in that culture where the pressure was on the woman to make sure that the husband had a male heir. This put her in a very difficult spot. And it grieved her for decades. We'll see how much in just a little bit. This was not an easily met problem for her. Secondly, her husband moves her without much... much help here in a patriarchal society she was removed from the familiarity of her upbringing which was in Ur of the Chaldees which was a very cosmopolitan city in its day the leading city culturally of its day and she's moved from the the wealth and the surroundings of what goes on in this hustle and bustle of a big city and she's moved to a foreign place and then once she moves there and she's totally uprooted. She suffers the loss of her father in law. And her father in law had been very dear to her. They had moved together. And Tara dies in Haran. And then in chapter 12, she's uprooted again. No sooner does Terah die than Abraham says, we're going to go to someplace else. And she leaves whatever little security for whatever amount of time she had in that place. and, And she's removed again to another place. Some unknown place in Canaan where she's not familiar with anything. And at this point, her husband is 75 years old. He's no spring chicken. This is not a very certain life for her. In Genesis 12, 10, they face famine. He's moved her to Canaan, but there's a terrible famine in the land. And not only do they have famine, but they've got to move again to deal with the famine. And they end up in Egypt, which is not a familiar and happy and comfortable place. And when they get to Egypt, she's abducted. Sarah is victim to Abraham's fearful interactions with the Egyptians and finds her abducted by the the Egyptians and in the middle of a hot mess until God delivers them. And at this point, the weakness of Abraham's character becomes very evident. It's one thing I love about the Bible, and you know that it's not mythical because it treats the weaknesses of its heroes very openly. And here's Abraham. Abraham. God's man but in this moment he had a real failing of character and said you know tell tell them you're my sister and in the meantime she gets abducted and put into the king's harem until God delivers them supernaturally so then in chapter 13 they move again and this time they move to the Negev and that's a desert place And they have a lot of cattle. They've got a lot of things that they're supposed to sustain. And this desert region, it's known for its little rainfall and arid conditions. And nevertheless, there she is with her husband in a place that can't sustain them. And since it's unable to sustain them and all of the flocks that Abram had accrued during this time, he moves them yet again back to Bethel. It's not a happy story. It's a woman who's got to uproot herself over and over and over again. That place where he had built a, an altar to the Lord back in earlier chapters. And now, once they're back in Bethel, family strife breaks out. There's warring factions between his, uh, Abraham's nephew, Lot, and Abraham's herdsmen, and they decide to split. There's family strife, and Lot goes down to the valley of Sodom, and Abraham heads off again, and they, they move. And now she's further isolated from her family. She's not in a good place. They don't have any children. Now they're at the Oaks of Mamre near Hebron. And in chapter 14, life is not all roses because war breaks out. Five kings gather together and go down and vanquish Sodom and Gomorrah. And Sarah and Lot and all of his stuff is abducted. And Sarah has to sit by while Abram takes 318 men on a very dangerous nighttime raid. And a daring rescue of Lot and all the others that had been abducted. And this is the time when Abraham is met by Melchizedek. And so again you have this strange contradiction of Abraham having this great courage to take his men and go out and face five kings, and at the same time, still being very weak in his character at other times. And this is when things between Abraham and Sarah and Hagar start to get really interesting. So in Genesis 15, at their advanced ages, Abram is promised to have a son of his own as an heir, Even though Sarah, once again, we're told in this passage, is barren. And then in chapter 16, after ten years of that promise not having come to pass, perhaps brokenhearted at all of this, wondering, no doubt, where God is in all of this. Brokenhearted at her own ability to conceive and to provide an heir. Wanting to see her husband have the son that he so desperately wants before he's too old, she suggests that maybe a surrogate is the way to go. And she puts forward Hagar, her handmaid, as the candidate. And that brings further difficulty. In Genesis 16, instead of solving the problem, it generates even more. Hagar gets pregnant and begins to imagine herself more primary than Sarah, and caught between them, Abraham, wishing to protect Sarah's uh, status in the household uh, tells her that even though Hagar may have borne the child Sarah is still the mistress of the household and Hagar is still under her authority and in weakness he dumps the whole thing back into her lap and says well do with what you think you ought to do weak willed man just steps back now after Hagar's attempt at running away Sarah receives her back into the household. What humility that must have required. To to bring back this symbol of her own inability at this crucial time in their history, she receives her back into the household along with Ishmael. And that had to be hard, it had to be painful. And a reminder of her infertility and of her animus against Hagar due to her own decision to give Hagar to Abraham in the first place. And then 17, she endures 13 more years of being barren to the place now that she is physically incapable of having children. That's a broken-hearted woman. This is a defeated woman who has been through the mill she had no hope of changing anything barring a miracle and then in chapter 17 her name is changed and she's incredulous at the prophecy of her still having a child but she gets the promise a second time and this time the angel says next year next year i i I don't know that she still had the ability to hope But there was something about that promise that she clung to. Hebrews tells us that it was by faith that she conceived. So she was believing that promise as much as it seemed contradictory to the things around her. And this is when she calls Abraham Lord in her heart. And then Sarah witnesses a tragedy. The supernatural destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. And now the, the the fertile valley where everybody was, where Lot and his family was, is destroyed. Her, her nephew's wife is turned into a pillar of salt. Her Lot runs off into a cave, ends up in an incestuous situation with his two daughters. This woman's enduring. And in chapter 20, Abraham's on the move again. And this time to Gerar. And once again, she's the victim to Abraham's cowardice and drawn into his deception of Abimelech. The guy shows his weak character yet again. And then, chapter 22, where the Scripture is strangely silent on what she did with the whole situation when Abraham went out to sacrifice Isaac. Good grief that had to have impacted her. Although Scripture doesn't tell us how it impacted her. And there's animosity in the home and... And there is Abraham's cop-out again that leaves her victim. And then in chapter 23, after the sacrifice of Isaac, she dies at Hebron. After yet another move by Abraham. It's quite a biography. Quite a biography. Virtually never having true roots to put down in one place living with this amazing contradiction and every, every woman here who's married to a Christian man knows this contradiction that we can be great men of faith and obedience and at the same time very weak and fearful at other times because that's the nature of humanity. And yet he's her husband and she walks with him through all of this. And Peter would hint, I think by the text that we get here, without fear and giving in to a constant inner churning. What a wonder she presents. She's an extraordinary woman. And Peter's point? That a believing wife ought to submit to an unbelieving husband just as she would to a believing one. Now you can imagine the, the women reading this when Peter had written it to them in their circumstances as exiles, as we read at the beginning of the book. How many a gal has thought, if I could just get a godly husband, what heaven that would be. We're contradictions, and so are you. At times extraordinarily godly, and at times extraordinarily ungodly. Both of us do that. And Peter demonstrates the godly men, even prophets like Abraham, can at times be real jerks. And he was. And the fact that they are jerks doesn't dissolve the order in the home that God has ordained. It doesn't change things. So how is a wife to respond well in such circumstances? He puts it this way in verse 1. Be subject to your own husbands. Now that is a big word. What exactly does it mean to be subject to your husband? That's the $50,000 question. And does it look like this in your mind? Because if it does, you're not understanding the passage. You're not getting where Peter's going and how much he is elevating the role of, of a woman in this situation in her spiritual impact in the world. Now, this subjection, he locates principally in three things. He does it in three couplets in the text, and we'll be able to look at them. The first one comes out in verse 2, and he uses this phrase. So, picking up again in verse 1, "...likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be one without a word by the conduct of their wives." when they see first your respectful and pure conduct. Respectful. Not throwing off the order that God prescribes for the home, but maintaining a respectful response. Now, some have said at various times, and I've discussed this with, with lots of people, how do you respect someone that isn't respectable? Respectable. Well, you act respectfully. You act respectfully. That's what he's looking at there. Respectful conduct. And not treating the individual as though somehow they've been disqualified because they've messed up. Any more than they should treat you as though you're disqualified when you've messed up. There is a respectful attitude that comes in. Uh, one commentator, uh, Karen Jobs, is useful here. She mentions that in Greco-Roman society, it was expected that the wife would have no friends of her own and would worship the gods of her husband. And so here is this Christian woman married to an unsaved guy in a culture that would assume that she is to follow her husband's lead and she's caught between a rock and a hard place. How does she do that without compromise? How does she not use his failing as an excuse to usurp his rightful place and being careful to protect his reputation and standing in society? Because that's part of what this respectful thing is. In the process, she wants her husband to be seen as a respectful man in front of others no matter what. Doesn't mean there isn't a place for counseling, there isn't a place for confrontation, as we'll see in all of this. Sarah was no shrinking violet. When she had some issues with Abraham, she was able to speak up and confront him head on. At the same time, she didn't take charge. But she worked with him. It's apparent from the text that she she accomplished what's given to us here and Trust me, I I am listening to this text and saying this is high stuff. We'll come back to that. She has to go along as far as she possibly can without violating her conscience before God. But at the same time, not making every difference an issue of conscience. That can be a problem. And so it's a very fine line. It's a, it's a balance that needs to be, to be done. So he uses these two terms. The first was, was respectful, but the second was pure, or some translations have chaste or upright. Because when the husband isn't what he ought to be, the wife can begin to look for someone or something else to fill the void that's left by the, the man. And that's the meaning here of saying, no, remain pure and chaste. Don't, don't turn your affection to some other source because this guy's failed. It's, it's not a righteous response. And I think an awful lot of women will find in their hearts and in their minds, if not physically, seeking for the intimacy or the strength or the affirmation or whatever from some other source because they're not getting it from their husband. And Peter's saying, don't give in to that. Don't give in to that. And in the process of protecting and making the marriage covenant something that you are faithful to, do it in a gentle and a quiet spirit. Man, he's not making this easy, is he? He is not making this easy. But the the words, as they're fit together here, mean maintaining an inward repose that rests more in Christ's sovereignty than the outward condition and prevents division and conflict. To rest in Him. That's how you maintain a gentle... the, The idea of a quiet spirit there is one that isn't inwardly agitated all the time because many a woman many a person period any human being in sin can be very inwardly agitated while outwardly presenting a placid exterior i remember a story once given about a little girl that was being driven by her dad and the dad said honey you've got to sit down you've got to sit in your seat you can't get up you can't stand up while we're driving the car and she was going to stand. And he said, honey, you you have to sit down. You can't stand. And they went through this back and forth for about 15 minutes. And finally he extended her legs and sat her down and buckled her in. And they got a little ways down the road. And she said, I'm still standing up inside. (laughs) Peter's idea here is stopping the inward agitation. How, we're going to find out in a few minutes. As I mentioned before, Sarah was not afraid to speak her mind or to face Abraham when she needed to. But apparently, she didn't do so in a panic. If I don't seize the reins, everything will come apart. She didn't do that. She wasn't panic-struck over it. She could do it calmly and clearly and not being driven by inward agitation. And that's a tall, tall order. And from the rest of the context, it appears that this gentle and quiet spirit is is located mainly in. And I'm going to give you a, a phrase here. And it's a tough one. It's a lack of fretfulness, which can often spill over into nagging and manipulating. That's why he adds those words. Not being frightened by frightening things doesn't mean that you aren't going to face some frightening things, but it means you're finding your security, not in whether or not this guy performs well, but in the Christ who is over it all. That's a tall order. It is a high, high, high call. This elevates women to a place that is is not subservient while being subject. Not obsequious, but instead serving the Christ behind the scene. Note that in 3.15, these very... Two things, these same two things, respect and quietness, are applied to all Christians, men and women, undergoing difficulty in the hands of those who are not respectable. So we're going to come back and deal with that with men next week when we come back into this next portion. And then he gives his third set of couplets. So let's start back in verse 1 again. Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives, one, when they see your respectful and pure conduct, your commitment to them, and to be maintaining a respectful attitude, even though they may not be very respectable. And second, do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing you wear. That doesn't mean women are supposed to look ugly or frumpy. It means that your real beauty comes from the inside First. And let your adorning be with the hidden person of the heart with an imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. It's putting on your makeup for the Lord. You may put on your external makeup for your husband. Put on your internal makeup for the Lord. For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves by submitting to their own husbands. As Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. And you are her children if you, here's the third couplet, do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. <laughs> well, he has asked three impossible things here, hasn't he? He's, he's hit a pretty high mark here for us doing good and being unafraid, continuing to be Christ-like in the responses, and trusting more in the Lord than in your circumstance or your husband. So this does bring us to a couple of questions, at least they run through my mind if they didn't run through yours, and the first is, why would a believing wife submit this way to an unbelieving husband? Why would you do such a thing? And the first answer is this, verse 3, that they may be one. It's evangelistic. It's evangelistic because you're living for something higher, for a spiritual cause in a very natural setting. It's ministry of the highest order. And it's profound and can only be done by one who is born again by the Spirit of Christ and living In his power. Peter's concern that Christian wives continue to submit to their own husbands not only shields, let me give you another quote, not only shields Christianity from the accusation that it is a social evil, but is also clearly motivated by evangelistic intent. The unbelieving husband observes virtues in the wife's good demeanor that are motivated by her relationship with Christ. Virtues not inferior to those motivated by Greek and moral philosophy. And observing this, the man himself may be one to Christ without words. For in that culture, it is shameful for the wife to presume to instruct her husband, which may also be the concern in First Timothy 2, 11 through 12. And here is a situation where silence is the more effective means of communication. Not coldness and cutting off, but not trying to drive the train by words. So then we come back to the bigger question, well, how does an unbelieving wife submit to an unbelieving or a believing wife submit to an unbelieving husband? And this is how he defines submission: by respectful and pure conduct, by gentle and quiet spirit, and doing good while unafraid. Notice it doesn't mean being a slave. That isn't what he says. This is how he defines submission in its proper role. It's not being obsequious. It's not, it's not bowing, walking ten steps behind, being a shrinking violet, not being able to speak your own mind, not not contributing on, on the spiritual level in every plane, but doing it respectfully without letting your emotions be divided or to go someplace else being gentle and quiet in spirit internally and continuing to do what you know is right before the throne of god and remain unafraid in the process wow why these three why does he define submission this way in this text Because submission has more to do with submitting to God's plans, purposes, and providence than it does in submitting to the person. I don't know about you, but when a police officer tells me to stop, when he flips on the lights in his car and tells me to stop, I don't stop because I'm afraid of the policeman. I don't stop because I think the policeman has any intrinsic authority. I stop because as a Christian... I see God standing behind that institution and it's my job to stop as I serve him, not the cop. I serve him. And that's what Peter's getting at here for the woman. Not not because this is the the best way to make your, your hubby do your every whim, but because Christ is behind that. And I want to serve and please him. Uh, to use a term that that, uh, Don Carson would use, uh, the husband stands asymmetrically in front of God. In other words, you don't do it strictly for him. You do it for the Christ who is behind, the one who is above all. And if that's true in a marriage where you might have an unbelieving spouse, how much more in a marriage where both are believers? right? Another quote. On the other hand, the husband also sees in this affirmation that his wife's or slave's submission is motivated no longer by the expectations of Roman society or the principles of Greek moral philosophy, but instead by the authority and example of the crucified and resurrected Christ. In a masterful move, Peter both upholds and subverts the social order. And you say, but, "But the world doesn't recognize when I submit to its authorities because I'm submitting to Christ. That's OK. They don't have to recognize it. Trust him. Trust him. And the same in the home. The Christian wife takes up this challenge in being subject to her husband, not so that men will look or feel better about themselves. She does it because she's on a mission. She's on a mission to her unsaved husband to be the means of his conversion. And the weapons of her warfare are spiritual, not natural. And to the saved husband, she's in partnership with him to manifest Jesus Christ in this fallen world so as to see many others brought to Christ outside the home. She's serving God faithfully and powerfully in a ministry of reconciliation. And seeing men and women they come into contact with, brought to the saving knowledge of Christ through the spirits, through spirit-filled living. And living that is above the culturally denominated ways that we're, they think we're supposed to live. In other words, ladies, ministry. Ministry. Think of the ministry God has called you to. It is profound and powerful and spiritual and not about making some dope of a husband feel good about himself. This is high. How does the believing wife submit to an unbelieving husband? As always, we need to point you back to whats what it is that Christ won for us as believers when he rose from the dead and ascended on high. Remember that when he ascended on high, he said, I will send the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit indwelling us is the only means whereby we can begin to approach this kind of a life before him. Only by the power of the Spirit. This isn't some sort of uh, self-effacement. This is learning how to walk in the upright power of the living God. And it's an amazing spectacle to see when it's beheld. Such a ministry can only be undertaken by walking in constant, conscious, deliberate dependence upon the Spirit of God. There's no other means. No other means. And once again, it's not just about, it's, it's not at all about, Oh gee, I, you know, my husband has to feel like I'm, I'm just, uh, just here for him i can be a doormat it's not the idea the idea is that in serving christ in all of this you will do what is best for your husband because he spiritually needs what you have to give in the manifesting of christ in that home it's a very very extraordinary call let's pray father god we lift up an amazing image here in this passage Far different maybe than what some of us have thought. It's so different from the way the world thinks and functions. In some cultures there is this subjugation of women to try and make them obsequious and and with no will and no no strength. And in others try to make women dominant and overtaking all others that's not your it's not your word your word takes the woman and elevates her to a very high place and says take on the same spirit that that i walked the earth with as jesus christ and how i interacted and how i dealt and yes i faced some very fearful things but i faced them in the power of the Spirit. And I learned to be gentle when those around me were harsh and not gentle. I learned how to walk in the power of the Spirit rather than respond in the reactions of the flesh. This is not just for women, Father. It's for us men, too that we learn to serve Christ in exactly the same way. For we're meant to be His bride. And so we take on these things in regard to Him. Not as though He's unsaved, but in the perfection of His holiness. And to take up these qualities that we, that we would so admire in the woman of God... And say, I want that in my service to Christ as I walk with Him. These are high things, Lord. They're beyond us as human beings. The picture presented here is a supernatural one, a one that cannot be attained by gritting your teeth or resolving to do it. It must be done by imbibing the fullness of your spirit and walking deliberately dependent upon you in it. And I pray that all of us today will take that in, in the fullness of what that means. Let Christ then be seen in this world through us in taking up this this amazing challenge that's put before us. Not as though it's weighty, but in a way that it frees us from the conventions of society and culture. And liberates us to serve you above all other things and people and institutions. Lord, make us like our Savior in these ways we pray in his name. Amen. y'all, you, you are dismissed.